Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We pray that as we study your word today, that you would make us to be like him, that you would minister your grace and peace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're going to start reading, start studying through the book of Philippians together today. So if you have your Bibles and you'd you'd like to turn to Philippians, you can turn to Philippians 1. We're just going to look at Paul's greeting this morning, just the first two verses. So we sprinted through the book of Ruth uh, last time, a chapter at a time, and you can see that I'm determined to crawl through Philippians with one arm, apparently. <laughs> That's not true. We will move faster in, in coming sermons, but I thought it would be good for us to slow down and simply consider Paul's greeting to the Philippians today and also try to understand just a bit of the background of this letter. And I thought it would be good also for us to slow down because the greetings, the introductions to Paul's epistles or any of the epistles in the New Testament are parts of the Bible that we tend to skip over when we read. We just bounce over them, kind of like we do the genealogies. Your, your eyes glaze over. We treat them like religious boilerplate, as, as if Paul were, were saying to the current residents of Philippi, you know, like those junk mail that you get in your, in your mailbox from time to time. But that's not true. Paul is always careful very careful in his introductions. And as the saying goes, the Holy Spirit, who inspired the words that we're considering today, never wastes his breath. So if you look at, at the first two verses, you'll see that Paul follows the conventions of letter writing in that day, which were to begin with the sender of the letter, and then the recipients, and then a greeting. The sender, the recipients, into the greeting. So if you're the kind of person that takes notes or does outlines during the sermon, that would be a a handy outline for you today. Sender, recipients, and greeting. Um, This was standard practice at the time, but what Paul does with each of those elements is actually fairly striking. Um, I noticed this week as I was corresponding with some of you by email that our modern email has sort of reverted back to ancient epistle format. It always starts with to, or from, sorry, from, and it has your email address to whoever you're sending it to, and then the subject line is your, your introduction, your, your benediction, or, or maybe your malediction, depending on what kind of email you're sending. Um, but in all of Paul's letters, he uses this space to introduce key themes that he will develop in the rest of the epistle. And additionally, every letter that we have in the New Testament was written to a particular congregation or congregations. 
into a certain situation and background, and we would do well to know a little bit about the Philippians and what their situation is too. So who were the Philippians? What was their relationship with Paul? Well, we know that this was a church that Paul loved deeply. It's not, not that he didn't care for the other churches that he had started, but there's a particular warmth and affection for the Philippian church that Paul has. And you can see it in this letter. He says, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 7. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them those whom I love and long for. My joy and my crown. Paul deeply loved these saints at Philippi. And for their part, we know that the Philippians also had great concern for Paul's welfare and a great desire to participate in his ministry because they sent gifts and people and support to him over and over again. And that's also referenced in this letter. Their mutual esteem for one another is obvious in this book. And it it would be no surprise to us that they have this esteem for one another when we remember uh, the events surrounding the starting of this church in Philippi, which we can find in Acts 16. You'll remember in Acts 16 that uh, right after Timothy joins Paul and Silas, we read that the group had planned to go into Asia Minor. They had planned to go into Asia, but Luke tells us that they were prevented on two separate occasions by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't say exactly what that is, whether that was a, a vision or a prophecy or, or some providential event that prevented them from going into Asia, but it happened twice. And so they change course and move a different direction. They find themselves in the port city of Troas. And there in Troas, on the very first night, Paul has a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us, begging him, come and help us. So they make the obvious conclusion that the Lord had opened a door for them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So they get on a boat and they cross the sea and find themselves in Philippi. Now Philippi has a a storied history. It was founded in the middle of the 4th century B.C. and named after Philip II of Macedonia. That's where the name Philippi comes from. Uh, Philip II was the the father of Alexander the Great. So this is sort of the start for this city. Um, Later, it was conquered by the Romans. And by this time, when Paul and Silas and Timothy show up, Luke tells us that it had become a Roman colony, meaning that all the citizens of Philippi had the same rights, the same privileges that uh, the citizens in Rome in the capital itself had. And so it was a very Roman, there's a very Roman aura about the place. The architecture was Roman. Many army veterans would, would retire to Philippi when they retired. And even though it's in modern day Greece, and it was surrounded by Greek-speaking communities and cities, Philippi's official language was Latin. 
So this is the situation that Paul and Timothy and Silas, others, find themselves in a very uh, pro-Roman city. And Paul's, um, Paul's practice when he would go into new places like this would be on the Sabbath day to go find the local synagogue and reason from the Scriptures with the Jews assembled there. Um, there was believers, proselytes uh, from Judea and, and God-fearers scattered throughout the ancient world, and they would usually have synagogues, places to worship. And Paul would go find these places and then reason from the Scriptures with them and show them that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He was the risen Christ. And as people came to the Lord, uh, these Jewish believers would come to the Lord, then he would turn his attention to the Gentiles, and as the Gentiles started to come, a church would gather around. That was Paul's normal missionary tactics. The only problem is, in Philippi, there was no synagogue. So Paul and his group had been prevented by the Spirit from following their plans and going into Asia, and they arrive at Philippi in the midst of this Roman colony, and they're looking for the synagogue. There's no synagogue. There's no obvious bridgehead for the gospel. So what, what do they do? On the first Sabbath, they go to the river and they find a group of women praying. And these, these are the people that the Lord has prepared. And as Paul preaches the gospel to them there on the riverside, the Lord, it says, opened the heart of one of the women, Lydia, a businesswoman, to receive the Lord. And this was the beginning of of the church in Philippi. You'll remember soon afterward, Acts 16 tells us that they encounter a slave girl. As they continue to preach in the city, there's a slave girl who's demon-possessed and exploited by her masters for monetary gain through fortune-telling. And and as she follows this missionary band crying out after them, it says that Paul was greatly annoyed And he turned and cast the demon out of this girl. And here's the second person that we have recorded in Philippi who enters into the glorious liberty of the gospel. But her owners were furious at their loss of income. After Paul exercised the demon, she was no longer able to tell fortunes And so they drag Paul and Silas before the authorities and they're beaten and thrown into prison. And this is where we read about the famous Philippian jailer whose life caved in around him as Paul and Silas that night they're praying and singing hymns and there's an earthquake and the foundations of the prison are shaken and the doors are open and all the chains of the prisoners are loosed. And just as the jailer is about to take his own life, he hears Paul's voice. Do yourself no harm. We're all here. And astounded, he asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they preach the gospel to him. And a man whose occupation it was to keep those under lock and key was given his freedom in Christ and his family as well. These three stories, these are the stories that 
Luke records for us in Acts 16. This is the beginning of the church in Philippi. Paul and Silas are forced out of the city, but, and then they travel on to Thessalonica. And there we, be, we see the beginning of the Philippian church and their relationship with Paul. Because there in Thessalonica, they send him a gift and they send him support. Paul moves on from Thessalonica to Berea and then to Athens and finally to Corinth where he stays for at least a year. And during that prolonged stay in Corinth, the Philippians send Paul gifts again and again. They never forgot the freedom wrought for them by the Spirit of God through the ministry of Paul and his co-workers in the Lord. It cemented for them a bond of fellowship and unity in the Lord that comes out over and over again in this letter. They even contributed heavily to Paul's collection for the saints in Jerusalem as he traveled later throughout the Gentile world collecting an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. The Philippians donate heavily to it even though they're in relative poverty. And it was while delivering that gift in Jerusalem that Paul is arrested and after a time exercises his right of appeal to Caesar. And so he gets on a boat and he goes to Rome and he's placed under house arrest to await trial. This is where this letter is written as he's awaiting his trial to speak with Caesar. And upon hearing the news... The saints at Philippi again sent aid to their beloved apostle, this time by the hand of one of their members named Epaphroditus. So you can imagine, you can imagine the shock of joy and surprise that Paul has as he's waiting there under house arrest. Perhaps there's even a knock at the door and the guard allows in his visitor and it's Epaphroditus. It's the Philippians sending him aid again. As, he, as Epaphroditus comes in and he has his gift, Paul, we've taken up this collection for you. We're praying for you. We know that they're praying for him. What joy Paul must have felt. And it's not only that Epaphroditus brought a gift. He traveled some 700 miles to bring this gift to Paul. And he almost died bringing it there. He became so ill on the journey. The Philippians loved Paul. They had a special relationship with him. And so when Epaphroditus is well enough to travel, Paul sends him back with this letter in hand that we are reading today. And so knowing that background, let's read his greeting to these Philippians again. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's consider first the sender, Paul and Timothy, it says. In his greetings, Paul would usually identify himself as an apostle. An authorized emissary, a sent one of the risen Christ, a a title of authority. And even in the few other instances where he refers to himself as a bondservant, like he does here, 
in his other letters, he always includes a mention of his apostleship except for this greeting to the Philippians. So what does he want us to understand by the term bondservant? What does he want us to get from that term? Well, the New Testament has a few terms that we might render servant. But the one that Paul picks to describe himself here is one that refers specifically to someone who becomes the property of their owner. Other, other terms for servant that we might use, um, they indicate someone who has liberty to go seek employment elsewhere if the conditions aren't favorable. But the, the term that Paul use, uses as for bondservant is the same word that we would also render slave, someone who is owned by the master. This is at least one thing that Paul means by referring to himself as the bondservant, that he is owned by the risen Christ. And this is actually true of every Christian. It's true of every single one of us. In 1 Corinthians 7, 22 and 23, Paul says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave, same word, is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Same word. Verse 23, you were bought with a price, so do not become the slaves of men. To be Christ's bondservant is to be a person who belongs to the Lord because he has been purchased by his own blood. But notice also that Paul says that those who came to the Lord while they were slaves in the temporal sense, in that In the ancient world, if you were a slave and you came to the Lord, Paul says, in a certain sense, I want you to consider yourself the Lord's freedman. In what way is someone who is is a slave to someone else as their occupation, as their uh, vocation, their state of life, and someone who is a bought servant of Christ, how can that person be free? In what way could you consider them free? Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Romans 6. And look at verse 20 and following. Romans 6, verse 20 says, For when you were slaves, same word, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then and the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. You see, what Paul knew is it doesn't matter that if you if you are a servant to in a human sense here, um, or if you're a free man in the sense here, all of us are servants in one way or another. We all serve a master, even if, or especially if, that master is our own desires, our own sinful desires. The question then is not if you serve someone, but whom it is that you serve. You see that the freedom that was given to these people in Romans 6 that Paul is talking about was not a freedom to do whatever you wanted. He he described that as bondage. You can imagine someone who is free to do absolutely anything they want. They have all the time. 
that they need. They have all the means. They have all the money that they need to do absolutely everything that they want. And all they want to do is live a dissolute life. Would you consider that person free? Paul wouldn't. He said he would call that person a slave of sin. Listening to someone who says, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. The Christian response should be, can you want what is good? Are you free to, to will and to do, as Paul will say, God's good pleasure? This is the freedom that Christ has won for us in his death and resurrection on the cross. The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism were right to affirm that the Christian's only comfort in life or death is that I am not my own, it says, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I belong to Him, it continues, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for Him. To belong to Jesus Christ is true comfort and true liberty. There's a prayer whose attribution to Augustine is apocryphal, but which captures this paradox perfectly. It says, O God, whom to know is to live, whose service is perfect freedom, and to whom to praise is the health and joy of the soul, thee with my lips and my heart, and with all the might I have, I do praise, bless, and adore through thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Service to the Lord Jesus Christ daily is perfect freedom, because it is rendered from love and gratitude for the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing bestowed by the grace of God. When you come to Christ, when you believe in Christ, your conscience is set free from guilt and sin and no longer in fear of the justice and punishment of God. And having a sweet sense of acceptance through the saving work of Jesus, we are free to enjoy doing Christ's will. Or as the question I asked earlier, we are free both to will and to do God's good pleasure. Biblical freedom is being able to desire and perform the will of God, that which is acceptable, good, and perfect. Have you been set free from sin? Or are you still a slave to your own desires? Which master are you listening to daily? Do you listen to the Lord through His Word and through His Spirit and through His people and through their counsel? Or do you take counsel yourself? Do you listen to your own desires? Do you listen to your own wants? When you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, who are you listening to? Paul will say also in Romans, do you not know that you are the slave of whomever you obey? Whomever you present yourself to obey, you are that one's slave. It's something for us all to consider. Now also the recipients of the letter. How does he address them? Look at the middle of verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. 
Paul doesn't say to my friends in Philippi, nor even to the church in Philippi, as he does in other letters. Both of those would be accurate. But how does Paul, when he thinks about the Philippians, how does Paul think about them? He thinks about them as saints. Saints in Christ Jesus. When Paul thought about the Philippian church, that was the word he picked. What does it mean? Is that a a special class of Christian, a certain group that he's writing to? You know, in in the Roman Catholic church, there's any number of criteria that you've got to meet in order to be considered a saint. And it's, and it's very extensive. One of, one of the criteria is that you need to perform two miracles after you're dead. <laughs> you, have to, you have to have at least two miracles attributed to you after your death. And that's just one of the tick boxes in order to be considered a saint in the Catholic Church and get your name on the calendar. Is that what Paul has in mind? when he says, to the saints at Philippi. No, he's not describing a special class of Christian. Saints is Paul's favorite word to describe all Christians. In fact, Paul doesn't even use the word Christian in any of his letters. In all of his letters, Paul never refers to anyone at the churches he writes to as Christians. That does occur elsewhere in the New Testament, but Paul prefers the word saints. It means holy one. Very literally, it means holy one. One that is set apart to God. Consider 2 Timothy 1.9, which says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, or separated us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You see how that holy calling is the exact opposite of having the long criteria to meet before being considered a saint. He says, God called us not according to our works, not according to your resume, but with a holy calling according to his own purpose and his own grace, which he gave us in Christ before time. Or Colossians 3.12, which says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, or saints, that's, that's the exact same word that they've chosen to translate there as an adjective. Saints and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, etc. A saint then is all believers chosen by God and called out to be His holy ones, to be morally upright and pure, imitating God's holiness. As the Lord says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But notice in those verses that I just referenced, it's God's choosing, it's God's bestowal of the identity, it's God's grace that comes first. Paul would say, you are saints, so now you are to live like saints in Christ Jesus. You are saints, so live like saints in Christ. We can become so accustomed to Paul's use of that term, in Christ, that it, it passes over us like um, it's a pious platitude. Paul uses it over and over and over again. It's central to his thought. It occurs 
um, something like that. In him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, occurs over 20 times in, in Philippians, in just four chapters. Christians are to rejoice in Christ, in chapter 3, verse 1. Our consolation is in Christ, in 2, verse 1. It's the environment in which God's peace guards our hearts from worry, in chapter 4, verse 7. In the Lord is where Paul lays out his plans for the future in chapter 2, verse 19. It's shot through throughout the epistle and throughout all of his epistles. And here it's the saints in Christ Jesus. What does he mean? In the core, being in Christ is Paul's shorthand for the truth that all who trust in him are united with Christ and bound tightly by faith so that his obedience and sacrifice and resurrection become our own. Through faith, Christ's death on the cross becomes your death under sin's condemnation and your death to sin's reign. His resurrection declares your right standing before God the Father and promises a new life of freedom where you might love and serve God without fear and willingly. It's no wonder that as he considered Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Paul's desire was to be found Again, in Christ, not claiming a righteousness of his own, but resting instead in the righteousness that comes through faith in him. Saints are holy ones, those who are set apart, holy by their virtue of union with Christ. And Paul's great burden in this letter is that the Philippians would realize that high calling that they have in Christ and then begin to think and act, and live in light of it. It's our calling as well. We are all saints in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that you are a saint? Do you realize God's grace that He has for you in Christ? You are a holy one. It's your vocation. Think about, think about it this way. What, what would it do for your life week in and week out, if you thought the title saint was your vocation, that was your job. This is how our jobs work. We're given titles, we're accountant, or farmer, and we wake up and then 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week, whatever it is, day in and day out, we go and we do that task because that's our job, that's our vocation. What would it do for your prayer life if you thought saint was your vocation? If you began to to see yourself as a saint and live in light of that, what would that do for your charity? What would it do for the way that you treat everyone around you to realize that these are not just your friends, these are not just members at your church, people that you know, but these are saints in Christ. But they're not only in Christ. It says they're also in Philippi. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. We're in Christ, and we are in Springfield. And these realities do not negate one another. They layer and they order. The Philippians, by virtue of being in Christ and in Philippi, had certain temptations. They were were surrounded by paganism. They were surrounded by uh, overt Roman patriotism and emperor worship. And that presented them with certain temptations. And Paul will deal with some of these temptations by making reference to our citizenship in heaven and and exhorting him to think and live in certain ways. 
But they also had certain advantages being in Philippi. There were places where they might preach the gospel or live out works of mercy and charity and and bring others to the Lord. And we are the same way. We are saints in Christ in Springfield. And that comes with certain temptations, but also comes with certain advantages. And we should be thinking about how we might extend God's grace, God's mercy, His reign in and around us in Springfield. This is one of the reasons that God has us placed here. He also mentions the bishops and the deacons. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. This is, in all of his letters, this is the only greeting where Paul mentions the church officers. So it stands out. If you were to go flip through any of his other epistles, um, he, he greets the saints, but he never makes mention of the church officers. Um, so who are the bishops and the deacons? Simply, the bishops are the elders. Other translations, your translation, might instead of the word bishop, might use the word overseer. So in the New Testament, there's, there's three words that deal with the office of elder, what we would call elder. And um, the one that we have here, bishop or overseer, is one of those. It, the, Greek, the Greek word is episkopos. You can hear where the denomination, the Episcopalians, get their get their word from that. And that the authors in the New Testament will pick one of those words to use depending on what aspect of an elder's office they want to highlight. So a bishop or an overseer is when uh, they're trying to highlight the overseeing, the governing function of elders. There's other words where we get the word elder uh, that point to an elder's age or spiritual maturity. Presbyteroi, that's where we get our, we're Presbyterian, so we have, uh, we are elder-led. That's pointing, that's when they want to highlight uh, an age maturity, a spiritual maturity. And there's also poimen, or shepherds, and these are used interchangeably, all dealing with the same office. Titus 1, 5 through 7 is an example. Paul writes to Titus saying, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders, there's the word, in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. You can see that as he continued in the paragraph, without changing his thought, without changing uh, the sentence even, Paul just switches between elder and and bishop, or elder and overseer. So he's talking about the same office here. Who are the deacons then? Uh, the deacons, the diakonos, the servants, are referenced in 1 Timothy 3, 8 and following, which says, Likewise, the deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So these are the officers that Paul has. You could see that the, the elders have a governing, a shepherding, a teaching function, and the deacons, uh, their office is less defined. But we can see as we walk throughout the New Testament, um, especially beginning in Acts 6, 
that they're overseeing, they're administrating ministries, especially the physical needs of the church. So why does Paul include them in this letter and in no other letter? I really don't know. (laughs) Uh, There are a number of suggestions given in in the various studying that I did, and uh, one of the best ones that I came across was that this being sort of a thank you letter, think about Epaphroditus traveling 700 miles to bring this gift to Paul. Um, If they've taken up collection, there's probably been some kind of oversight, some kind of administration that had to happen for this to come. Perhaps someone even suggested perhaps Epaphroditus was a deacon or an elder. We don't really know, and it it doesn't really say. But I think it's important. Um, I just wanted to highlight for you what these offices are, what their functions are. Uh, This is part of the entire church of all the saints of a healthy and functioning church. It has elders that lead and that govern and that teach and shepherd, and it has deacons that administrate and um, organize the functions of the church. And in Philippi was a healthy and functioning church uh, that had a great relationship with Paul. And so finally, look at Paul's greeting. Grace to you and peace, he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has a bit of a wordplay going on here, changing the customary greeting of the time from the word greetings to the word grace, from carrying to charis, grace and peace to you, he says. This greeting that Paul gives is actually a benediction. He begins his letter with a benediction, invoking God's grace, his favor, on the Philippians, and sending God's peace into their hearts. It's not peace from Paul. It's not, uh, this is my kindest regards for you. But it is grace and peace from God our Father. It is His kindness and care that is behind the transaction that Paul is giving the Philippians here. And it's the power and authority of the risen Christ and his triumph over the world and Satan and sin and death. These are gifts that Paul is sending back, not from himself, but from God. We might ask why he doesn't mention the Spirit. Usually Paul's prayers and his formulas are, are Trinitarian, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I think that's because he's expecting that the Spirit communicates this grace and peace through the words which he inspires here in this letter. This letter is inspired by the Spirit himself. Paul is expecting that grace is going to come from God to the recipients by means of this letter, and that when they are finished hearing it, when they're finished reading it, that that grace will be with them as the Spirit's words abide in them. So every week, our service begins with the words, grace to you and peace. Very much like this letter, grace to you and peace. And every week, our service ends, like this letter begins, with a benediction. Do we we treat these as idle words? These are a pleasant way to begin, a pleasant way to end. 
No, Paul, Paul is referencing something uh, far greater here in his letter. He's, he is invoking grace and peace to them from God. And we ought not to think that the words in our service or the words as we meditate and consider the scriptures are idle words either. In Ephesians 4:29, Paul says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So as we pray for one another and bless one another, we ought to expect, like Paul does, that God will minister grace to our hearers. He expected that this letter would be the means by which the Philippians would grow in the grace of God and enjoy his peace. And I trust that as we study it in the coming weeks, and as this word abides in us, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you all as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and peace that you have given us, that you have qualified us to be partakers of your saints in light, that you have given us the precious gift of the Holy Spirit, and you have given us your word. We pray that your grace would be with us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.